Our scripture reading this morning is from John 14, that's page 901 in the Pew Bibles. Page 901, let's pay close attention to the reading of God's word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. 
My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this passage to us, speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Guide my preaching, let anything I say which is not of you, not last, and anything I do say which comes from you, apply it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' disciples are having a hard time. Their hearts are troubled. They've gathered with their teacher to celebrate this traditional feast. But in the previous chapter to this, he's just told them that one of them will betray him. And then he tells them he's going away, and they can't come with him. And then Peter, ever one for a bit of boldness, says, no, I will follow you, even to your death. But then Jesus turns around and says, no, you will deny me three times. Awkward. I hope, uh, I hope your Thanksgiving meals coming up go a little better than this. What a meal. Well, that's where we start with our passage today. The disciples are discouraged, so Jesus encourages them. Let not your hearts be troubled. I wonder if any of you come here today with troubled hearts, carrying burdens with you into this service. I wonder what encouragement Jesus might have for you in our text this morning. Well, we're going to see three points in our passage today. Point number one, Jesus is the way because he is one with the Father. Jesus is the way because he is one with the Father. Point number two, Jesus is the way because he shows us the way we should live. Jesus is the way because he shows us the way we should live. And point number three, Jesus is the way for the whole world. Jesus is the way for the whole world. All right, so let's dive into our first point here. Jesus is the way because he is one with the Father. So when we hear Jesus say that he is the way, one of the most natural questions we might have is the way to where? What's the destination, the place that we're going to end up on this way? And the answer seems to be the Father. The destination to which Jesus is the way is life with the Father. Jesus says that he's going to his Father's house, and that his Father's house has many rooms, and he's going there to prepare these rooms for his disciples. Now, this is temple language. The, the temple is just God's house in the Bible, and uh, the prophet Ezekiel tells us about the rooms in the inner court of the temple where the priests that serve stay. These are the places that's the highest privilege. They're living right 
in God's presence at all times. And Jesus is saying that he's going to prepare a place in the heavenly temple so that they can dwell with God in a way that's foreshadowed by only the holiest priests in the Old Testament. Jesus says that when he comes again, he's going to take them to be where he is. Now, this, this isn't just going to heaven when you die. Rather, when Jesus talks about coming again, he's pointing to the same thing the book of Revelation is talking about. When this heavenly city descends out of the heavens and the division between heaven and earth is abolished and God comes to dwell with humanity forever, in that, uh, temple, uh, in, that, uh, in that city in Revelation, we learn that there is no temple because Jesus himself is the temple. And he's also the lamp from which the glory of God is reflected in everything in the city. So that's what Jesus has gone to prepare. He's gone to prepare this city that's going to descend from heaven when he returns and uh, where his disciples will dwell with God and they'll dwell with God precisely because Jesus is the lamp. I'm, I'm not sure if the angels had gotten any work done on the heavenly city by the time Jesus returned to heaven, but one thing is key, the presence of Christ in that city is what makes it all work. But that day hasn't come yet. And his disciples aren't going to be able to follow him where he goes now. So Jesus comforts them by telling them that although they can't follow him now, they do know the way. Jesus is the way. If they know Jesus and believe in him, then they'll be able to join him in the Father's presence. But Philip, who hasn't had the opportunity to read the book of Revelation, is confused. So he asked Jesus to show them the Father and Jesus has an opportunity here to reiterate his main point. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. If you've known Jesus, you have known the Father. The reason for this, as Jesus has said earlier, is that he and the Father are one. Or as he puts it here, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. This is what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus and the Father are two persons. They are one being, mutually indwelling each other. There's no corner of the Father's being from which the Son is absent. There's no corner of the Son's being from which the Father is absent. They are fully one. Way back at the beginning of the gospel, John 1.1, we heard, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1 also tells us that this word gives light and life to the whole world. And I think that's why Jesus says that he's the way and the truth and the life. That there's no truth and no life that the Father gives to this world which he does not give to it in the Son. But John 1 also tells us that the world rejects the light and the life that God has held out to it in his Son. And so the word became flesh in order that a world cut off from God's truth and life might have a way to God. The son made a way to God through his flesh, as Hebrews says. 
In doing so, Jesus made God visible. No one has ever seen God. The only begotten God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus' humanity is the perfect human image of who God is. And so Jesus can say that those who have seen him have seen the Father, even though the Father is invisible. Note well what Philip's question implies, that it's easy for us to fall into this trap of trying to find another way to the Father other than Jesus. We, t- we might look at Jesus and then think to themselves, that's great, but now I want to see the Father. But the only place where the Father can be seen is Jesus. That's why there's no other way to the Father. Now the Father and the Son and their perfect unity and mutual love are engaged in one unified work. Because the Father dwells in Jesus, he does his works. And uh, as the Son becomes incarnate, this divine love and work that the Son and the Father share together is expressed in a perfectly human way, which means Jesus' obedience to the Father. Insofar as the Son is God, he's fully equal with the Father. Philippians 2 tells us that. But insofar as Jesus is human, we can talk about obedience and submission. That's how we're to understand the words in verse 28. For the Father is greater than I. Now some people think that here the Son is eternally lesser than the Father. Which would contradict what the Bible says elsewhere about their equality. But in context, the Son is talking about bearing his humanity up to heaven. Look at the verse. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. For the Father is greater than I. That that kind of implies that this greatness of the Father explains why it's good news that Jesus is going to him. And why might that be? Well, I think Philippians 2 is a helpful passage here again. Philippians 2 tells us that as God, the Son is equal to the Father, but that he humbled himself by taking on a human form and dying on the cross. And after he humbled himself, God exalted him. Now, as God, the Son is eternally and unchangeably great and exalted, but as man, as a human being, the Son is humbled and comes before the Father as his God, who then exalts him, crowns him with glory and honor after his obedient humiliation. And because Christ receives this glory and greatness from the Father, from his position on the throne that his Father gives him, Jesus will be able to do even greater works than he has previously done through and in his disciples, as he says in verse 12. So this is Jesus' first encouragement to them, the truth about who he is. Because he, the Son of the Father, God and man, he is able to unite God and humanity. He is, his going away is actually good news because he's preparing the way for his disciples to receive eternal life and live forever in the presence of the Father. 
that's the first point. Jesus is the way because he is one with the Father. Second point, Jesus is the way because he shows us the way to live. You know, one of the most common ways that we use the metaphor of way, we use it a lot, I can barely not use it, but one of the most common ways we do is this metaphor that life is a journey, and different paths we might take in life are different ways of living. They're different, uh, di- different um, forms or styles of life. And this is something we see in the Old Testament a lot. God tells Israel to walk in his commandments, like the commandments are a path that they're walking in. The Israelites are supposed to choose the way of the righteous, not the way of the wicked. So it shouldn't be too surprising that after we hear Jesus calling himself the way, he begins to tell his disciples about his commandments. If you love me, says Jesus, you will keep my commandments. Notice that it is still Jesus himself who is the way, though, not the commandments. Uh, Changed living in the Christian life flows from love for Jesus. Now, Jesus' disciples do love him. But they need to be reminded what that is supposed to mean. Their love is making them want to hang on to them, hang on to Jesus, when it should be leading them to rejoice in his work and exaltation and ascension to the right hand of the Father. Their love needs to be redirected, and that's what Jesus is doing here. And so Jesus tells them, even after Jesus is gone, that his disciples can still express their love for him through keeping his teachings. But we have to say a little more than that. One of of my favorite musicals is Godspell. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. It's an interpretation of the life of Jesus. There's this song, the the finale of of Godspell, as it's usually performed, where after the crucifixion, There's a musical number where all of Jesus' disciples start singing these uh, pieces and snatches from the song Jesus songs Jesus has been singing throughout the musical. This is kind of this beautiful picture that Jesus' teaching is going to live on in the memories of his disciples. But theologically, it's actually missing something pretty important, isn't it? You see, in that version of the story, Jesus really does leave his followers as orphans with only the memory of his teachings to guide them. What Godspell forgot to include is the resurrection of Jesus. A little bit of an oversight there. Not to mention the sending of the Spirit that Jesus talks about here. You see, Jesus doesn't just tell his disciples to show their love for him by obeying his commands. He also promises that he's going to ask the Father to give them his Spirit to be with them forever. This spirit, he says, already dwells with them in some way, but he will indwell them in a new way. He's going to be in them in a way that he hasn't been in them before. And uh, Jesus says that when the spirit comes, he will come too. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Now this seems to be a different coming than the one he talks about in verse 3. This this great uh, joining of heaven and earth that's going to happen at the end of time. This is a much more imminent coming, a presence of Christ by the Spirit whom he's going to send once he ascends to heaven. 
He says that on that day, not only will they know that he is in the Father and that they are in him, but that also that they are in him and he is in them. So the indwelling of the Spirit is also the indwelling of Christ. Even though Jesus is physically absent, his body is in heaven, still the Spirit mysteriously makes him present to us. Jesus says that the Spirit is another paraclete. That's the Greek word he uses. I think we have helper in our translation here, but there's a footnote in your Bibles. Some other translations use perhaps advocate or comforter. Commentators debate the meaning a bit, but there's some occurrences in rabbinic literature that make me think that it really is advocate. And that's how the word is being used, in the sense of a legal advocate. Now, this isn't exactly a defense attorney. They didn't have defense attorneys back then. Rather, this is somebody, a powerful member of the community who has some kind of social standing, who when you get accused in a court of law, they stand up and they take your side. They stand up for you and protect you. So what does it mean here? What does it mean to say that the Spirit is an advocate? Well, Jesus says the Spirit is another advocate. So first of all, Jesus is calling himself an advocate. He's the first advocate, and the Spirit is going to be another. And it's uh, precisely what Jesus is about to do, isn't it? I mean, he's not just going to enter the court on our behalf. He goes so much further. He actually dies in our place. And then he's going to enter into the heavenly court, the heavenly throne room, and advocate as our high priest before the throne of God for us. That also means that Jesus is going to face off against our accuser. The opposite of an advocate is an accuser. These are two pairs of words that we find in some of this rabbinic literature. Um, Who's the accuser? Well, it's none other than Satan, the ruler of the world, that he mentions in verse 30. The book of Revelation says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan loses his power to accuse. The accuser of the brethren is cast out. So the Spirit is going to carry on this work of Jesus. The Spirit's going to be an advocate for us. That means he's going to protect us from Satan's accusations. He's going to protect us from the world's persecution. The Spirit's going to have our back. Jesus is not going to leave his followers alone at the mercy of Satan and the world. And we can see now how off-base the ending of Godspell is. There really are other things I like about that musical, but the ending is off-base. Jesus doesn't leave us as orphans, alone in the world with his teachings. And indeed, even to remember his teachings, we need the presence of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit is going to do. A life of love-motivated obedience is impossible without the Spirit. But with the Spirit, great things are possible. When the Spirit comes, the Father and the Son are going to come and make their home with us. That means in some in unfathomable way, we become able to do the works that Jesus does. That's, that's what he says. Would we say it if the Bible didn't say it? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfectly united in their loving work in the world. And in whatever way it is possible for a, a sinful creature to be invited into that, we are invited into that work. And in fact, the work that Jesus will do through his disciples will be even greater than the work he did here on earth. That's what he says. 
Let's, let's stop and apply this to ourselves for, for a moment. What does this teaching mean for how we, we live the Christian life? When we know that Jesus gives us commands, the gospel is a free gift of grace, not based on anything we do, and yet it ought to result in changed hearts and changed lives. I think one wrong way to think about it that, that we sometimes do is we think, you know, Jesus does his part on the cross, delivering me from sin. That, that's God's part of our salvation. And then the rest of it, now it's time for my part. Now I go and, and uh, live a changed life. I do the works I'm asked to. Um, God and humans both have their role to play. Um, when I first become a Christian, maybe I need to receive grace. And then after that, it's kind of up to me to do the rest. Now that's wrong, not because obedience and good works are unimportant. They, they clearly are. What makes the view wrong is the idea that following Jesus' commands is something that we can, we can do independently, that we only need grace sometimes or for the beginning of the Christian life, but for the rest it's up to us. What this passage shows us is that even for the works we are called to do, we are dependent upon God's grace at every moment. What Jesus is pointing us to here is that the Christian life needs to be lived in constant dependence upon Jesus and the Spirit. The fundamental reason that believing in Jesus might change your life, the fundamental reason that a Christian is going to start to do different things than they used to do, is because the Father and the Son have come to dwell in them by the Spirit. In fact, in, in some very real sense, the good works we do, insofar as they're good, are also God's works in us. They only happen because the risen Christ has sent his Spirit into our hearts, bringing the love and the work of the Holy Trinity into our lives. So where does that leave you today? And the, our obedience to Jesus' commands is always very imperfect in this life. I have to acknowledge that. And that in turn is because our love for Jesus is very imperfect. That's definitely true of Jesus' disciples here. He acknowledges that they love him, but then later on he says, but you know, if you loved me, I guess more perfectly, it would look a little different than it does now. And maybe those failures are weighing very heavily on you this morning. And our passage does call us to express our love for Jesus and following his commandments. And if those failures are weighing heavily upon you this morning, then you know something of your own weakness. And if you can acknowledge that, that is a good thing. The good news is this passage doesn't throw us back on our own resources. It doesn't just say, go and try harder. Rather, it invites us to prayerful dependence upon the Spirit's work. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And Jesus says that in this passage. And I don't think that that's a promise that God is just going to be some easy slot machine that we can get whatever our desires are out of. But I think what it calls us to is prayerful dependence on God to unite us more and more closely to himself so that the works of Jesus might manifest himself more and more in our lives, changing us, changing our relationships, helping us to love those around us. So if you're here this morning and you're discouraged with your lack of holiness, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
believe in God and also in Jesus. He has given you an advocate to protect you, to be at work in you, and to guide you on his way. So that's the second point. Jesus is the way because he shows us the way we should live. Point number three. Jesus is the way for the whole world. Here I want to address an objection a lot of people have to this passage. Maybe you had this objection as we read it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, doesn't that sound rather exclusive? You know, what about all the other religions? What about all the other beautiful religious poetry and, and stories that have been written? Isn't it kind of arrogant of Christ followers to think that this is the only way? Now, a lot of people think about different religions as different equally valid paths to God. Now, I, I will say, there are whole bookshelves of books written on the problem of religious exclusivism or inclusivism in the philosophy of religion, so I'm not going to answer all, all of your questions here today. If you want to talk about it more, my email is on the back of the bulletin. Let me know. Let's get lunch and let's talk about it. But I do think our passage addresses it. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that we have this question in verse 22 from uh, Judas, not Iscariot. By the way, I don't know if you imagine what it was like for Judas, not Iscariot at parties, uh, you know, Introducing himself, hey, I'm Judas, not Iscariot. <laughs> um, but Judas, not Iscariot, uh, in one of his, his only direct appearances in the gospel, asks this question, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And that's not a crazy question, you know, because we, we had a reading from Isaiah 40, which no doubt Judas knows. Um, when God reveals his glory, all flesh is going to see it forever. I thought that was the plan. And at the beginning of John's gospel, we, uh, we hear that uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world. And he gives his only son so that they might not perish. Isn't that always the plan? So why is Jesus now talking about revealing himself to them and not to the world? Perhaps also Judas has some ideas. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if he's, he's, he's concerned uh, altruistically about the world, or if he just wants, he, he has this view that he wants Israel to be vindicated before the world, and like finally all of the, you know, those things are put publicly right. But either way, he raises the question, what is, what's, what's going to happen with the world? So why is it, yeah, why is it then that God would manifest himself exclusively through this one 30-something carpenter in a backwater Roman province, and then take him away so the world can't see him anymore. It is rather strange. It was strange to Jesus' first disciples. It might be strange to you as well. Well, I think one thing we need to pay attention to right off the bat here is that this, what this passage says about us as humans, because it puts us in a very different place from where we might think that we are. The, review, the view that all religions give different, equally valid perspectives on God, it often comes from the idea that humans are fairly good at figuring out the truth about God. You know, knowledge about God is relatively accessible to our knowing faculties properly used. That's not the picture of humanity that we find in John's gospel. Chapter 1 tells, that, tells us that although the, world, the word shines his light upon everyone in the world, yet the world is in darkness. 
they refuse to receive the light. In verse 17 of our passage, Jesus says that the world cannot receive the spirit of truth. The Bible teaches us that sin has rendered us wholly unable to receive the truth about God by ourselves. That doesn't mean that we don't, might not know there is a God or that we might not have some desire for God deep down or even seek after God. But that knowledge of God always gets suppressed. That seeking after God always gets perverted into making an idol, a false picture of who God is. And on top of that, this world is under the power of Satan, who Jesus calls the ruler of the world here, and he keeps the people in bondage with his deceptions. You know, if it was true that all humans could build their way up to God just by kind of thinking hard and intelligently about religion, then it would actually pretty, be pretty arrogant to claim that one religion had a corner on the truth. It would be to claim that we did a better job at, act, at an activity which is wholly within human power generally. Just like claiming that Christians are the best scientists or, or plumbers or, or artists or composers. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Amadeus. The whole point of the movie being that it's not actually the most pious people who make the best composers at all times. We know this. But knowing God is not like these other human activities. In fact, none of us can cross that divide between ourselves and God. Rather, God has to cross the divide to show himself to us. The incarnation where the Son takes on flesh is God's act to cross that divide. After the world rejected the light of the Son, God came yet closer in the incarnation. And we needed such a radical act of God because we were so lost in the darkness of our sin. Another thing to consider as we think about this is that religion isn't the only source of exclusive claims to absolute validity that one can make. Consider John Lennon's Imagine, another great song with bad theology. And one of the things we're supposed to imagine in the song is, is no religion. And I mean, fair enough. It's not crazy to be a little freaked out by exclusivist religious claims. There's been plenty of extremist religious violence in this world. And Christianity itself has often been co-opted for that. In fact, the politically powerful have been co-opting it for about 17 centuries now, sometimes for very violent ends. But one thing I find interesting about Lenin's song is that everybody is still supposed to come together as one in the song. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one, which is a beautiful and poetic picture, but what's the political program that accomplishes that? You know, what, what, who is us, and what unites us as one? Uh, is it a, if it's not religion, then what is it? Is it a nation state? Well, he says no countries, so that's probably out. So is it a charismatic leader? Is it an ideology? Is it the metaverse brought to you by your friendly local social media company? And if any of those options for world unity sound a little scary to you, then you'll probably get where I'm going here. Most big ideas worth believing in also have a tendency to turn exclusivistic, dominating, and even oppressive. And actually, the Bible addresses this human tendency to seek unity in a destructive way. Perhaps you remember the story of the Tower of of Babel. Um, And actually, one of the things you learn, if you learn Hebrew, is that Babel is just Babylon. I don't know if you know that. Same word. It's the Tower of Babylon. 
Um, I don't know why we don't call it that, but we probably should. Um, and I, I think that's supposed to make us think about empires when we read it. What we're seeing with the Tower of Babylon is something that's going to happen again with nation states like, and empires like Babylon. God's plan, you see, was for humans to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, spreading out into a bunch of different nations. But the builders of the tower, they want to create one glorious human civilization. And based on texts we have from the later Babylonians, everything that we have is, is online, by the way, if you want the link. You can read the ideology of these kings for yourselves. What do they talk about? They say, our God has told us that we need to expand the borders of our empire to the four corners of the world and unite the entire world under our rule. My point is, if the world is as dark a place as the Bible says, then it's really not that surprising that human attempts to impose unity on it often go to a very dark place. And you know the Babylonian Empire wasn't made without knocking a few heads together. The story of the Tower of Babylon shows that the human quest for unity tends to be actually an enemy of God's plan for diversity. Somebody always doesn't fit into our human model of unity. Someone always has to get crushed under the wheels of history. And yet there's also something in us that keeps longing for that unity. And so we try again. More violence, more killing, more death. So what makes Jesus and his little band of disciples any different? Why isn't this just another movement with a beautiful vision of human unity that ends up being dark, destructive, and oppressive? Jesus doesn't really answer Judas's question directly head-on, does he? He mostly repeats the main points of what he's already been talking about, but I think that there are a few clues here. Most striking is verse 31. I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Okay, so Jesus does actually intend to reveal himself to the world after all. However counterintuitive, however counterintuitive it might be that he's going to do that by dying, going away, and becoming invisible. A second clue is the repetition about the coming of the Spirit and the command to love. You see, the question is missing the point a bit. Jesus isn't revealing himself to his disciples instead of the world. He's revealing himself to his disciples so that they can reveal him to the world. You know, the greater work he has for them to do once he's descended, you wonder, what, what could that be? What could be the greater work that the disciples are going to do, which is greater than anything Jesus did while he was here? I think it's preaching this good news to all creation. Jesus never went to Rome. Jesus never sailed down the south coast of India. Jesus never went down to Cush in Ethiopia, but his disciples will, and they'll bring that good news wherever they go. In the book of Revelation, there it is again, very important book, shows us people of every tribe and tongue and language coming together to worship God in a unity that doesn't oppressively negate their God-given diversity. And this is an important point for us to keep in mind. And Jesus doesn't just tell us to follow his commands just to pass the time. Rather, the love of Jesus is supposed to be manifested among, among his people for the world. And that's why we're here, so that we can point the world to Jesus. 
Most, most of all, though, I think the answer to Judas's question is the shadow of the cross that looms over this chapter. Now, that, that's where Jesus is headed. He seems even eager to get there. He keeps saying things like, I'm not going to talk much more. Let's get up and go, even though we have, we have a couple chapters left. Jesus is eager to be about the business of the cross. Why is it in verse 7 that he says, from now on they will see the Father? Could it be that it's because they're going to see Jesus in a new way as he walked to the cross, almost like they're really seeing him for the first time? In verse 29, Jesus is saying that he's telling them ahead of time what's going to happen. It's only after it happens that they're going to believe. There's only so much Jesus can explain to them now before his death and resurrection makes it really clear what he is about. He's going to need to walk that path before they're able to believe in him, before the Spirit can really apply what he is teaching to their hearts. Verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Now this is the way right here. Before the disciples can show their love by obeying Jesus' commands, Jesus must show his love for the Father by obeying his command. What is that command? Well, if we look a little earlier in John's gospel, in John 10, 17, we find this. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it back up again. Nobody takes it from me, but I lay it down by myself. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This is the command that I receive from my Father. The command Jesus has received. The way that he's going to show his love for the Father is by his faithfulness to the point of death on the cross. You see, Jesus isn't just a human who had very clever or wise ideas about God. He isn't even just a human who lived an exemplary life that we should imitate. I mean, if, if, he, if that was all he was, he wouldn't be that special. He wouldn't be so different from the Buddha or Zoroaster or any of the other uh, religious sages who've come across the earth. Jesus is the God that we have all lost the God that we rejected. And in his death on the cross, we see God's love in human form, a love that pours itself out for this dark and broken world. It's not a worldly imperium with swords and horses and guns and missiles. But it's a victory that's won by losing. It's life that's brought through dying. It's enemies that are saved by love. That's the power of forgiveness freely given so that Satan can no longer accuse us, can no longer accuse you. His power to do so has been cast out. The power here that can bring light to human darkness, that can heal human division and bring all the nations to God. You see, that is why Jesus is the way. And as much as you and I are called to show our love for Christ through obedience, as much as we're called to manifest God's love to the world, however imperfectly we may do it, we are not the way. Because there's no love like that in this world. We could not even imagine it if God had not shown it to us. And that's why Jesus is the way. The way is not a set of moral principles or 
tips or techniques. The way is not something we can build with our own human power and ingenuity. The way is a person, Jesus, Son of God, slain for us, raised to make a new way for us. Let us believe in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we praise and glorify you that you have shown your love to us in a way we could never have expected by sending your Son to take on human flesh, to die at the hands of human beings, sinful human beings, to die for our sins. We thank you that through Jesus you have made a way that we can enjoy eternal life with you, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of what he has done. We thank you that you have given us your spirit to change us, to work Christ's life in us evermore as we wait for that day when he comes back. We pray that you would keep us in this truth. Help us to believe your son. Help us to trust and depend on your spirit. We pray all of these things, depending on the promise that you give us in this very chapter, that if we ask them in Jesus' name, you will do them. We pray all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.